I've never had a call like this in my life. The stride was longer than anything I could make. Hello? Here, so far, I'm here. What's going on now, sir? What? I'm in my yard right now. It's like... Do you see him now, sir? You can see the damn thing. It's looking at me. Uh-oh. It's running around. Okay, hang on. I don't know what the hell it's doing on there. Is he in your yard, sir? Yes, I told you. He's in my yard. Bigfoot, right? And she says it looked just like Chewbacca from Star Wars. She says he was holding her baby the way a human would, but says that baby had a face only a mother could love. Hello and welcome to Bigfoot Forensics, the show that utilizes forensic science and the different disciplines within crime scene investigations to study evidence, sightings, and eyewitness testimony concerning Bigfoot. We'll discuss the best methods and practices used by crime scene investigators to document evidence and prepare it for presentation. I'm your host, David Sagan. I am a current crime scene investigator, latent print examiner, and polygrapher. So this show will not be focusing on critiquing other investigators, but we will be looking at the Bigfoot evidence and see if there was a way we could have maybe documented it better. Also, if you have any comments, evidence or stories you'd like to share, email me at evidence at bigfootforensics.com or leave a message at 470-344-9441. Also, go to bigfootforensics.com. Submit your stories, pictures, videos, or any other evidence you have. We're going to take a look at it and discuss what we did right. And if any improvements can be made, we'll discuss that too. So let's make this a learning experience for us all. So what are we going to look at today? We're going to look at myths that turned out to be true and a whole bunch of written stories about Bigfoot. So let's address some of those myths that turned out to be true. All right. So one of the first ones that turned out to be true is going to be Machu Picchu. We've all seen pictures of that. For centuries, rumors circulated among the local inhabitants of the Andes about a lost hidden city in the mountains. That's where it starts, right? The locals. The story's told of an extraordinary Inca settlement tucked away in a remote location and surrounded, and it was surrounded by rugged terrain. However, as time passed, these tales were dismissed as nothing more than legends and fables. In comes 1911, an American explorer named Hiram Bingham. He set out on a quest to find the lost city inspired by the accounts that he had heard um, so he embarked on a rigorous expedition. He traversed the dense jungles and uh, guided by local farmers, he arrived and guess what he found? A sprawling complex of stone ruins perched high up on that mountain. Bingham had stumbled upon the ancient city of Machu Picchu, a place of breathtaking beauty and architectural marvels. Yeah, I stole that. The city consisted of intricately constructed terraces, temples, residences, um, it, it showcased the ingenuity and craftsmanship of the Inca civilization. The discovery of Machu Picchu captivated the world and shattered the notion that it was just a myth. Same thing happened with the city of Troy. The city of Troy, made famous by Homer's The Iliad, it was long considered to be a mythical place. Um, according to the ancient Greek tale, Troy was a powerful city besieged by Greek forces for 10 years during the Trojan War. However, the city's existence was largely regarded as fictional by most historians and scholars. Just a fictional place. But in the 19th century, an amateur archaeologist by the name of Heinrich Schliemann 
I think that's how you say his name, he set out on a mission to prove it. He wanted to prove that it wasn't just a legend or a myth, and it, but that it was an actual place. So in 1870, after years of research and exploration, Schliemann embarked on an excavation in modern-day Turkey. It is near the village of Hisarlik. Hisarlik? It's spelled um, H-I-S-A-R-L-I-K. I think it's Hisarlik or Hisarlik. Doesn't matter. Anyway, guided from the clues from ancient texts, he began to uncover layers of ruins, eventually revealing a series of cities built on top of one another. As Schliemann continued to dig deeper, he discovered the remains of ancient fortifications and houses and artifacts that aligned with the descriptions of Troy from the Iliad. I think one of his most significant findings was a treasure hoard known as Priam's Treasure, uh, which he believed belonged to the Trojan king Priam, mentioned in the uh, epic poem, The Iliad. Schliemann's discoveries, although met with skepticism at first, gained increasing recognition as other archaeologists studied and confirmed his findings. The site he excavated became known as Troy, and it was identified as the actual location of the ancient city mentioned in Homer's epic. The Kraken. Come on, you know that sounds fun, the Kraken. Release the Kraken. For centuries, sailors and fishermen told tales of terrifying beasts, right? Or encounters with monstrous creatures lurking beneath the water. You've seen those big, you know, the pictures of the giant squids and tentacles reaching up around the boat and grabbing it. That would be the Kraken, right? Basically, it's a giant cephalopod. That's right, I can say that, but I can't say skepticism. Oh, said it. Anyway, um, due to the lack of concrete evidence, uh, pretty much everyone thought it was folklore and just exaggerations. But in the late 19th century, a Danish zoologist by the name of Steenstrup dedicated himself to trying to prove the existence of it. Despite the absence of a confirmed specimen, Steenstrup believed the stories held some truth and he began to investigate. Sound familiar? All right, you ready for this? Here it comes. In 1861, a major breakthrough occurred when a fishing boat off the coast of Denmark called the Electon, it encountered a creature that became entangled in its nets. The fishermen managed to retrieve some of the remains of the creature, uh, which included a massive tentacle. Steenstrup examined the evidence and confirmed that it indeed belonged to a giant squid. Uh, this was the first tangible proof of the existence. As time went on, more encounters of giant squids were reported worldwide. In 1873, a group of fishermen in Newfoundland discovered a dead giant squid that measured over 19 feet. And over the years, additional specimens were found, allowing scientists to study these creatures more closely. However, here it comes, here comes the next big one. It wasn't until the 20th century that the first live giant squid was captured on film. That was in 2004. It was, a team of uh, it was a team of researchers in Japan. Uh, they managed to film and capture the footage of a giant squid in its natural habitat for the very first time. I'm wondering how blurry it was and can we compare that to the Bigfoot footage out there? <laughs> anyway, the groundbreaking footage finally provided irrefutable evidence of the giant squid's existence, dispelling any remaining doubts. So. How do we address that now? I think one of the biggest problems we're having now is the advent of AI and CGI and all that kind of good stuff, right? Presenting a, a whole slew of problems. And I'm gonna address that at some point when we talk about the integrity of the Bigfoot researcher. Okay, you ready for this? The platypus. 
In the late 18th century, European naturalists, uh, they had heard tales of bizarre creatures from distant shores of Australia. The descriptions of this creature were so fantastical and so crazy that many believed it to be nothing more than a clever constructed hoax. According to the stories, this animal had a bill like a duck, a tail like a beaver, and laid eggs like a reptile. And I'm not gonna lie, if we didn't know that this creature existed, and we haven't all seen pictures of it in the wild doing its thing, it would sound pretty crazy, wouldn't it? But here's the deal. Com well, not here's the deal, but let's compare a giant hairy hominid. All right, how about just a giant hairy creature walking through the woods versus a animal that has a bill like a duck, a tail like a beaver, and laid eggs like a reptile. <laughs> I mean, but it wasn't until 1802 when live specimens were finally brought to Europe that the truth became evident. Uh, I think it was, it was a British biologist, George Shaw. He examined the preserved pelt and newly arrived specimens, confirming the existence of this extraordinary creature. He named it the, I'm gonna have to look at the, the thing for this, uh, or, ornitho, Ornithorhynchus paradoxus. Ornithorhynchus paradoxus, later known as the platypus. Basically, I'm telling the story of this because the story of the platypus serves as a reminder that even the most extraordinary and seemingly implausible tales can turn out to be true. Sometimes nature has a way of surprising us with its incredible diversity and creativity, even if it takes us a while to accept it. So these examples, they demonstrate that myths and legends can sometimes be rooted in real events and phenomena even if they often are exaggerated and distorted over time, which makes for a great segue into the oral traditions. So we're gonna go from myths to the oral traditions, and then we're gonna go into reading actual newspaper articles that are related to Bigfoot. So you don't wanna miss this. Oral traditions, they're an important part of indigenous cultures. They are the means by which knowledge is reproduced, preserved, and conveyed from generation to generation. Oral traditions form the foundation of Aboriginal societies, connecting speaker and listener in communal experience and uniting past and present in memory. One great example of an oral tradition passed on is found within the Lummi people, the Lummi Nation. Among the Lummi people, a Native American tribe from the Pacific Northwest, there is a legend of a creature called the, it's, I, I looked it up, and it was called the Tissemix, or uh, Tissemiquis, Tissemiquis, or the Tissemix. And I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce it, so don't get mad, I did my best, I looked it up, I Googled it, anyway, I'm gonna call it the Tissemix because it's easier than Tissemiquis because I don't, I feel like I'm trying to sound like I know what I'm talking about when I say it that way and I don't wanna butcher it. Anyway, Tissemix. It's described as a large hairy creature that resembles a giant man or ape. It's believed to dwell deep within a dense forest. And according to the Lummi tradition, Tissemix is a powerful and elusive being associated with fear and respect. The creature possesses great strength and is known to be capable of great feats. 
It's said to move swiftly through the forest and communicate with a series of distinctive calls, which are often likened to deep howls or screams. It's pretty cool. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Um, the Lummi people hold, uh, they hold that creature in reverence and regard it as a sacred and mysterious being of the natural world. The creature is considered a natural spirit and also believed to hold natural powers. The Lummi people hold Tesemics in reverence and they look at him or consider him as a guardian spirit and believe to, that it possesses supernatural abilities and powers. Um, some legends even tell of encounters between uh, that creature and the Lummi individuals, uh, where the creature imparted wisdom or it offered protection to those who showed respect and reverence toward it. Um, other encounters with uh, Tesemics are often described in various ways in different tribal legends. Some stories depict the creature as elusive, uh, quickly vanishing into the depths of the forest when humans approach. Sound normal? Yeah, it does. Or familiar, not normal. I don't know why I said normal. Anyway, um, while the specific details and interpretations of the Tesemics may vary among the, the different tribes in the Pacific Northwest, the presence of a creature resembling Sasquatch or Bigfoot in Native American folklore is it's a common theme. And we all we already all know this. Um, these legends highlight a deep connection between the indigenous cultures and the natural environment. And sometimes it just represents a spiritual presence intertwined within the uh, the wilderness. But the legend of uh, Tesemics and similar creatures resembling Sasquatch or Bigfoot in Native folklore, they're not, uh, they're not tied to a specific time period, which is really interesting. They've been passed down through generation to generation, and they're deeply rooted in oral traditions and beliefs of Native American tribes in the Pacific Northwest. It's important to note that these stories predate written history. That's big, and their origins can be traced back for centuries or even millennia. The specific time period for the legend of Tesemics would, uh, you know, there you go. It'd be hard to pinpoint, but it goes back and predates written word which is pretty fantastical. I said fantastical. Uh, anyway, so once the oral tradition ends, I wouldn't say ends, I would say uh, once a different culture comes in and takes over, what happens then with the story of Bigfoot? Well, we're gonna find out because I have been scouring the internet and different resources and I have a whole long list of really cool things that we can uh, look at. Keep in mind that when I'm reading some of these articles that uh, some of them are hard to read because they're old and some of them have a different type of typeface. Let's get on with it because some of them are pretty interesting and I know everybody's been waiting for this part. The first one is from the Annapolis, Maryland Gazette, May 28th, 1772. That's right, you heard me. May 28, 1772. In one of the East India ships, which is expected home this spring, we hear they have a wild man on board, taken in the deserts of that country. He is represented to be all covered over with hair of the Caliban kind. I don't know what Caliban means. I guess I should have looked that up. Um, and comes as a present to a gentleman in Hampstead. So let's go ahead and address this now, okay? Um, remember, I'm going to be reading some old articles and there's going to be bits and pieces of history in there that no one's going to like or agree with. And I'll go ahead and tell you that I actually, uh, 
I'm actually going to tell you, I didn't mark several articles because of this. And um, they were really, really good. But nowadays you have to be like very careful about offending anybody. And that's the last thing I want to do. I'm just trying to have some fun and learn and research. And I don't want to offend anybody. And these are actual articles. So I actually had to skip some that were really good because, you know, people like to make a big deal out of them. All right. So this next one is from the Armenian magazine from the UK, February 1st, 1784. It's entitled An Account of a Wild Man Given by Emleve Roy. Okay, in 1774, a wild man was discovered by the shepherds in the neighborhood of Yuri. I don't know how to pronounce that, but it's spelled Y-U-A-R-Y. This man who inhabited the rocks near a forest was very tall, covered with hair, like a bear, very nimble and of gay humor. He never did nor seemed to intend to harm anyone. He often visited the cottages without ever attempting to carry off anything. He had no knowledge of bread, milk, or cheese. His greatest amusement was to see the sheep running and to scatter them. And he testified his pleasure at this sight by loud fits of laughter, but never attempted to hurt them. When the shepherds, as was, as was frequently the cafe, let loose their dogs after him, he fled with swiftness of an arrow and never allowed the dogs to come near to him. One morning, he came to the cottage of some workmen, and one of them endeavoring to catch him by the leg, he laughed heartily and then made his escape. He seemed to be about 30 years of age, as the forest is very extensive and has a communication with a vast wood that belongs to the Spanish territories. It is natural to suppose that this solitary but cheerful creature had been soft in his infancy and has subsisted on herbs. Sorry, lost in his infancy. <laughs> Told you it's hard to read. It's quite difficult. Um, this next one is going to be from the Maryland Gazette, June 27th, 19, uh, 1793. Uh, it says, Charleston, May 17th. A gentleman on the south fork of the Saluda River, in a letter of the 23rd, uh, sends his correspondence in this city the following description of an extraordinary extraordinary animal which has been lately discovered on the bald mountain and on other mountains in the western territory um, it's hard to read it's got that weird s symbol that looks like an f and i have to keep trying to change it so anyway this animal is between 12 and 15 feet high and in shape resembling a human being except the head which is in equal proportion to its body it draws somewhat like a terrapin its feet are those of a, um, a African-American. See what happened there? About two feet long and hairy, which is of a dark color. Its eyes are exceedingly large and open and shut up and down in its face. The hair of its head is about six inches long. It stands straight like a... Uh, anyway... Uh, its nose is like that of a human species, only large and inclined to what is called Roman. These animals are bold and have lately attempted to kill several persons in which attempts some of them have been shot. 
interesting. Some of them have been shot. I maybe should have picked these. Uh, I didn't realize how hard it was going to be to actually read with the, the weird font and the S's. So please be patient. Uh, their principal resort is on the Bald Mountain, where they lie in wait for travelers. But some have been seen in this part of the country. The inhabitants of this place call it Yahoo. The Indians, however, give it the name of Chickly Cuddly. May 23rd, a letter from a gentleman in Augusta to his friends in this city dated the 14th. Can't read that line. Uh, anyway, brings the following intelligence. Indian alarms have become now truly uh, various. The militia, light horse, and artillery will march either the latter end of this week or the beginning of the next. The commander-in-chief, Governor Telfair, is also to take the field in person and to fix his headquarters at Shoulderbone, a branch of the Oconee. Not gonna lie, I had a hard time actually trying to read that one and trying to cut out some of the, uh, the racist stuff that was there. Okay, so here's the next one, the Jeffersonian, Pennsylvania, December 5th, 1850. Remains of a giant, a human skeleton of unusual size has been discovered in, can't read it, so it looks like Harsimus. All right, well, let's go back. Remains of a giant, a human skeleton of unusual size has been discovered in Harsimus County, New Jersey, buried in oyster shells of immense size. It was in a sitting posture when found and is doubtless the frame of an Indian of olden time. It must have been eight feet in height. The skull measures 15 inches from the root of the nose over the top to the base of the occipital bone and is two feet in circumference containing a full set of teeth even i don't know i can't read it, it looks like it says even bound or even sound and white so what do you think eight feet in height uh that's not normal for that time period is it okay the next one southern shield arkansas may 1st 1852 it starts off with the wild man again we are credibly informed by a gentleman of this city that the wild man has been seen again in the swamps of Arkansas. He derived his information from two gentlemen who were out hunting and approached as near as 20 paces to him. His appearance was so frightful that they did not attempt to approach near. He is described by them as being about seven feet, two inches. It's pretty specific. And covered completely with black hair, interspersed now and then with gray. The story or the representations of him as last seen published in some of our papers, they pronounced untrue. He has no claws to his hands and feet, nor is his height eight or nine feet high. Still, he would be a curiosity worth seeing. We understand it is the intention of some of our citizens to capture him if possible. In the way of shows, he would be the wild mare with the hippodrome thrown in. Okay, this next one comes from Warren Reserve Chronicle, Ohio. December 17th, 1856, entitled Skeleton of a Giant Found. You know, I'm not going to lie, you, you can find a lot of articles about uh, giant skeletons and stuff like that. And I think even not too long ago, there was a conspiracy theory about giant skeletons and stuff, uh, you know, that are mentioned in all these articles that they had ended up at the Smithsonian. And they refuted that wholeheartedly. I'll go ahead and say that. So the article, Skeleton of a Giant Found. A day or two since, some workmen engaged in subsoiling the grounds of Sheriff Wickham at his vineyard in East Wheeling came across a human skeleton. 
Although much decayed, there was little difficulty in identifying it. By placing the bones, which could not have belonged to other than a human body, in their original position, the impression made by the skeleton in the earth and the skeleton itself were measured by the sheriff and a brother, both of whom were prepared to swear that it was 10 feet, 9 inches in length. Its jaws and teeth were almost as large as those as a horse. The bones are to be seen at the sheriff's office, originally printed by Wheeling Times. That's huge. Here we go, another one from Ohio. The Athens Post, Ohio, September 10th, 1858. Titled A Wild Man. A human being, supposed to be a wild man, is said to have been seen in the neighborhood of Lancaster, New Hampshire. He was completely covered with hair, and when seeing anyone, would make for the woods with the swiftness of an antelope. He was once discovered in the pasture helping himself to milk with the gusto of a nursing infant from one of the cows. You know, that seems to be a, a theme, not the drinking of the cows thing. I mean, I've heard that before, and I've come across it. Um, not that often, maybe I just haven't read enough, but the referring to it as the swiftness of an antelope, usually it's a deer, right? The swiftness of a deer. But it's pretty fascinating nonetheless. Apparently we had no problems printing these kinds of stories. This next one is from Green Mountain Freeman, Vermont, September 6, 1860. A race of giants formerly lived in Peru. And a lot of Peruvian guano received at Norfolk lately have been found the remains of a human frame. Wait, let's go back to that. And a lot of Peruvian guano received at Norfolk. Hmm. And a lot of Peruvian guano received at Norfolk lately have been found the remains of a human frame, being about twice the size of that portion of a human frame to be found in those now living, which shows that a race of men of extraordinary size once inhabited that part of the world. Nor are these deposits unusual. We lately heard of a human hand being found in a lot that went to Norfolk and frequently of various bones of ordinary size, which have in all cases been pronounced human. The presumption is that the workmen have struck a burial ground or some race of giants and are exhuming them for the benefit of agriculture. Amazing. The Orleans Independent, New Orleans. New Orleans Independent, Vermont, August 16th, 1861. Wild man. The inhabitants of Stanford are in an unenviable state of excitement over a wild man that has been seen in the vicinity who makes strange sounds on the mountains and lives on the roots and wild fruits. He is described as being about six foot high, covered entirely with hair two inches long, with the exception of the upper part of his face, all of which is very improbable. Very interesting. Okay, we only have a few more. The next one is from the Clarion Ledger from Mississippi, June 26, 1873. The wild man in the woods has made his annual appearance once more and very early. He being this time in Fannin County, Georgia, he is represented to be eight foot high and in a recent fight with some of the citizens who attempted to capture him, he killed one of them as represented and tore off the tail of a horse. I have to say that in all the Bigfoot research, you would think that we would have more of this story. Killed a person and tore off the tail of a horse. It's in the newspaper. So I guess it must be true. Okay. Still, you would think you would, you would hear more about this. 
Wilmington Morning Star, North Carolina, December 15, 1877. A wild man of the mountains has been seen in Watauga County. He made tracks and has not since been seen. The landmark says, our correspondent describes the wild man as being about six foot five inches tall with broad shoulders and long apish arms, smooth face and funnel shaped head. His body is covered with dark brown hair, near two inches long. His head and a greater portion of his forehead is covered with long, luxuriant, dark red tresses. Our correspondent affirms that this is the first time this wild man has ever been seen or heard of in the neighborhood. So that was 1877, long before the big hoaxes and everything of Bigfoot started, right? But they seem to be describing him very, very accurately. The Republic, Indiana, May 7th, 1883. A wild man among the natives of Virginia. Meldon, Virginia, May 7th. The wildest excitement has been created during the past few days over the discovery and pursuit of a ferocious wild man who has been ranging through the forest of Pulaski County. He was first seen by Elias Furch, an old and trusted farmer who encountered the human monster after sundown. The wild man jumped from a thicket and seized the bridle of Furch's horse, but Furch quickly hurled a plow point at him and he leaped back into the thicket with a frightened yell. He was fully six feet two inches, very muscular and long-armed and entirely naked with long matted hair and beard. The next day, a large party of young men found his trail and chased him up into the mountains. But as he fled like a deer, they were unable to capture him. On Tuesday, a conductor on the Chesapeake and Ohio Railroad who was hunting in the woods was beaten to death in a mysterious manner and it is now believed he was the victim of the wild man. An expedition is organized to start today to pursue the dangerous, uh, to pursue the dangerous creature. Okay, I'm gonna do one more, but let me tell you, there is no shortage of these stories. Uh, David Pauleads wrote an entire book. Well, he didn't write it, but he uh, gathered a whole slew of these type of articles and put them in a book. And I'm sure some of these, if I found them on the internet, I'm sure, some of these or most of these are probably in his book, but you should get it because I have it and it's huge and there are a ton of them. Um, but anyway, The Republic, Indiana, August 1st, 1883, man or gorilla? The extraordinary character who is scarring Canucks. <laughs> All right, Ottawa, Ontario, August 1st, Pembroke, about 100 miles north of Ottawa, has a lively sensation in the shape of a wild man eight feet high and covered with hair. His haunts are on Pretis Island, a short distance from town, and the people are so terrified that no one has dared to adventure on the island for several weeks. That no one has dared to venture on the island for several weeks. Two raftsmen named Tuffy and Salmon, Tuffy and Salmon, armed with weapons, plucked up sufficient courage to scour the woods in hope of seeing the monster. About three o'clock in the afternoon, their curiosity was rewarded. He emerged from a thicket having in one hand a tomahawk made of stone and in the other a bludgeon. His appearance struck such terror in the hearts of the rassmen that they made tracks for the boats which were moored by the beach. The giant followed them, uttering demoniacal yells and gestulating wildly 
They had barely time to get into the boat and pull a short distance out into the stream where he hurled the tomahawk after them, striking Tuffy in the arm and fracturing it. Salmon fired two shots, but neither took effect, the giant retreating hurriedly at the first sound of firearms. It was more probable that the townspeople will arrange an expedition to capture, if possible, what Tuffy describes as a man who looks like a gorilla wandering about in a perfectly nude condition and with the exception of the face completely covered with thick growth of black hair. Okay, I think I'm going to stop right there. Um, I hope you enjoyed these little tales. Um, let's call it story time. And we'll get back to doing actual forensic shortly. Anyway, hope you had a good time. She said she was holding her baby the way a human would, but says that baby had a face only a mother could love. Ooh.